Uh, I'm Tom Patterson, uh, filling in for Alex Jones today. Uh, and uh, it's an absolute delight to have Neil Bear here, uh, who has a Harvard connection, uh, including a degree from Harvard, the Harvard Medical School. Uh, many of you know, have been involved in China Beach and uh, ER, and is the executive producer now of Law and Order. Um, and, uh, Neil about 80% and me about 20% did Alex's class this morning and uh, what struck me was this uh, very unusual combination uh, of someone who has the sharp practitioner's eye and then someone who also has the analytical tools of a scholar so uh, that's from Mary Jo <laughs> <laughs> so it was, it was just a treat this morning uh, to be with Neil in, in Alex's class so uh, Neil Bear. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. Um, I uh, have a long history with uh, Harvard, a, a really wonderful history when I started out at the, at the Ed School. And the first class I took was a course that Ken Winston and Mary Jo Bain taught on ethics. And um, it really had a, a profound um, impact on me. Uh, I should wait for one second so Mary Jo can she might not want to hear it. But um, <laughs> Mary Jo, I'm saying how when I started out at Harvard, the first class I took was the class that you taught with Ken, and it had a profound impact on me because it was about ethics. And through all the years of going to graduate school in sociology and, and medical school and now and writing on ER and then Law and Order Special Victims Unit, those ethical dilemmas that so moved me and, and, and made me really want to, to tell stories, really, I think, had their, their beginnings in that course. And, and so I have to thank Mary Jo and Ken for that, because it, it, it had just a powerful effect on me. And it's nice that you know, your professors can have that effect on you 30 years later. <laughs> so um, I'm going to be, so I have some prepared remarks. I'm going to show you some clips. And then, uh, because that's what I do, and then um, hopefully we'll have some time for discussion and questions. So, um, I appreciate you inviting me here. I'm a confector of stories, uh, and I want to talk about the pitfalls and advantages of writing for television. I want to begin first by clearly stating that I don't pigeonhole what I do as entertainment as, or as educational writing. I tell stories. They entertain, I hope, because they're compelling, not mind-numbing numbing or time-wasting, offering a template for the viewer to reflect on his or her own life experiences. Stories on television can also educate because they offer the viewer an abundance of information. And like it or not, viewers do learn about social policy issues from watching shows like Law & Order Special Victims Unit. Today I'm going to speak to you about the power of television to promote social change and how new media like Twitter, Facebook, and mobile phones can be used not only to augment the policy issues portrayed on television, but can also serve as new conduits for storytelling. I think most of us would agree that the days of families gathering around their television to watch together is a relic of a simpler time. That was before cable, social networking, and video games were all competing for our eyeballs. Today you can watch almost anything that tickles your fancy if gardening or fly fishing is your passion, or you hanker to watch the news in Korean, you can have it delivered on your TV screen. And you can watch alone while your spouse or partner watches sports or a reality show in another room and your tweener swoons over glee. Like, well, fortunately mine doesn't. On the internet. Um, no longer is television the shared medium it once was. That electronic bonfire everyone watched at the same time. Granted, we watched in the privacy of our own living rooms, but we were all viewing the same programs, as you said this morning, the same three networks for the news, and talking about them the next day at the water cooler. We had fewer choices back then. The three broadcast networks held the monopoly on what they made available to the masses. But when CBS shocked us with a documentary about the plight of farm workers, or NBC dazzled us with the pace and pathos of ER, or ABC rocked us with Dick Clark's American Bandstand, we paid attention and we talked about it. Network television was the only game in town for decades. Now it seems we suddenly have too many choices. 
How can we focus on global warming or healthcare reform or nuclear proliferation when there are so many voices chattering on our screens? Some might argue that the nichification of television, providing everything under the sun to a small cadre of viewers, is a good thing because the panoply of opinion is good for democracy. But when small numbers of viewers are watching a disparate array of programs, they're not learning about the pressing issues of our times. And they're not having conversations about them either. And that's bad for democracy. So is television a dying medium for addressing social issues and presenting them to large numbers of Americans? Now that the audience is fractured and comes together in huge numbers only for events like the Super Bowl and the Olympics and the Oscars, is it time to look for new ways to address policy issues in compelling and dramatic ways? The answer is a resounding no <laughs> and yes. Um, television still attracts a mass audience. In an average week, 58.8 million viewers watch at least one program on cable, whereas 35.4 million watch one of the five broadcast networks. That's a split of 62 versus 38%, a tremendous shift from the past when most of the audience was watching network television. But these numbers are nothing to scoff at. If you have a story to tell, television remains the place to be to reach the largest number of people. On Law and Order Special Victims Unit, we've been telling stories about the most pressing social issues of our times week after week for 11 years. Just this month, we've tackled an array of thorny policy questions. Should we limit care to severely premature infants? How can we prevent the physical and sexual abuse of the disabled? And what should our country's role be in stopping rape in Congo? We don't set out to answer these questions. We draw on our characters, <coughs> Olivia Benson, played by Mershka Hargitay, and Elliot Stabler by Chris Maloney, to illustrate the tough dilemmas these questions pose. And we leave it to the viewers to ponder them. Drama can be power, a powerful tool for focusing on public policy, especially when 57.4, and I can't believe it myself, but NBC swears, 57.4 million viewers each week Unique viewers watch SVU on various platforms. One out of six Americans, including first run on network television and repeat episodes on cable and in syndication. And that's why we have 10 million viewers um, on Wednesday nights for our first run at 10 o'clock. We have a, a, a repeat. This tells you how bad it is. I guess these remarks are on the record. Um, how NBC is doing at 9 p.m. because we're repeated. And we're also repeated on Saturday nights at 10 and then we're on USA cable, and then we're in syndication in 98% of the country at various times around the country, Monday through Friday. So that counts as 57.4 million viewers. And if I went on Twitter right now, there would, and I typed in SVU, fortunately, there would be people talking about SVU. So, uh, uh, and, re and the repeats as well offer viewers a chance to see the show ad infinitum. That's a little secret no one is talking about. Television shows aren't just watched once. Many are seen multiple times across the television channel universe. And if the shows focus on policy issues, as our show often does, then audiences will get extra helpings of stories that help them think harder and deeper about the tougher pro tough problems we face today. Social policy issues must be explored on television dramas, I believe, because dramas are a reflection of the day-to-day -day struggles in our lives. But does presenting stories about the complex issues facing us today, like abortion or torture or the plight of child soldiers, make a difference? Is there a way to dramatize these issues so that they don't come off as preachy or pedantic? I believe with artful writing, we can weave these issues felicitously into TV episodes because these topics themselves are rife with conflict, which makes for compelling drama. And good TV relishes complexity because we can dramatize the messiness and conflict inherent in social issues through the characters' beliefs and actions. I think that's the key for us. We don't have people stand on the soapbox, but the issues come through when we talked about prematurity recently. A baby born at 23 weeks has a 17% chance of survival. We spend millions of dollars, which we didn't talk about in healthcare reform, on these infants. 22 weeks is, is the cutoff. So we did a show asking, should we be spending this amount of money on uh, preemies who have a very small chance of living, and if they do make it, have terrible sequelae, mental retardation, pulmonary problems, cerebral palsy. And that's something that we tend not to grapple with as a society, but makes for, as I just said, the drama. And through our characters, Chris Maloney saying, I don't care 
It's God's decision. Everything should be done for that baby versus Marishka Hargate saying, but Elliot, if it was your kid, would you want him to suffer? This baby's already, his brain is already bled. You know, and then he said, you're not a parent. You shouldn't be asked. And then she said, so I'm not a parent. I can't ask questions like that. And so you can see where I can dramatize a policy issue. You know, it's something that, you know, we could study. We can certainly get the data on how much money we spend. I know as, a, as the trustee of the Health and Pension Fund for the Writers Guild, we had five preemies one year, and it cost, you know, I think it was like $4 million in um, medical care, and the outcome is pretty poor. So we should at least be thinking, I believe, about, about these issues. Facts and figures compiled in policy reports organize the world in ways that make it possible for us to grapple with the complexity of social issues. That's what you all do here. But do these reports, often piled up on policymakers' desks, after you've written them, they go to DC, Mary Jo can certainly speak to that, engage us emotionally and intellectually in the way a good movie, novel, painting, or television show can? There's something about watching characters duke it out over their differences that can captivate us like nothing else can. We sit wrapped as characters battle over the ethical dilemmas of our times. It's hard to comprehend numbers. How do you wrap your mind around 15 million AIDS orphans living in Africa? It's like, what, what four Los Angeleses <coughs> filled with AIDS orphans. I, I don't think neuro, neurobiologically we can do that. How does one comprehend that of the 2.1 million children in Africa infected with HIV, only around 350,000 are receiving antiretroviral treatment? We know that's bad, <coughs> but how do we... How do we imagine those numbers? It's tough. But watch this shortened version. Oops, I think I put it in the wrong order. Sorry, so we'll be very. Um, watch the shortened version of a film I produced that tells the one man's story. So it said Mozambique on the front. So I think I put the wrong one in. Sorry. So while we're putting that in, all right, so I'll tell you about this film. Um, this is a movie I made. I, this is part of one of my life projects now, where I give cameras to people around the world. So I gave cameras to women in in Cape Town, South Africa, uh, who, and I partner with NGOs. I never reinvent the wheel. So I have found this NGO called Mothers to Mothers, and they teach women with HIV how to prevent transmission to their babies, and then those women teach other mothers. So we gave them cameras so that they could document their lives and tell their stories. Why was I interested in that? Because documentarians and photojournalists, the outsiders, oops, we're gonna see it. Let, let us watch for a second. This is a shortened version of my documentary. And I'll talk a little bit through it, too. Can we turn up? There. I made this film. I am 16 and I am an orphan. My father and my mother died of AIDS. I have a younger sister who lives nearby and I have a little brother. I don't know where he is. My dream is to find my brother. I haven't seen him in 10 years. This is where I live now, with Vovó. I call her my grandmother, but she's really not. Vovó and I are like a family now. to have a vote. She took me in after everything happened. I cook, 
and I clean, and I push her to church every day, and she gave me a place to live. These are my friends. We met at Rencontro. It's an organization that helps AIDS orphans. It's run by a woman named Olinda. Some photographers from America came to Rencontro. They gave us cameras and they taught us how to take photographs of our lives. My friends took all of these pictures. They also gave me a video camera and taught me how to shoot. The camera opened my eyes to our world. Not all orphans have someone to live with, to take care of them. But that's what we all want. <laughs> Jeremias is a friend I met at Rencontro. Olinda takes him to the cemetery to visit his parents' graves. He dreams of having a family again. divorced when I was six. My sister and I went to live with my father. My mother took my baby brother Alex. He was only three. That was ten years ago. After the divorce, I never saw my mother again. She moved to a village very far away. I heard she died of AIDS several years ago, but I'm not sure where she is buried. I don't know what happened to my little brother. This is my sister, Victoria. She doesn't live with me. She lives with another family, but she often comes to visit. De fato, em, em termos geral, estando nós os três, o que tu desejarias que o nosso lar fosse? Vem nós os três, ir à escola, ir a estudar. Você me contou que tens o irmão fora, que está contigo. 
já muito que não lhe vejo e não sabe onde está, onde é que está. Então também começou nesse sentido. Mas como não tenho nada a fazer. É assim, eu encontro a Estou para telefonar para ti, Nando, a de ajudar. Estou para obter uma informação através de ti, Nando, para saber onde ele está. Se está em Zambés, está na terra, para depois ele já deve oferecer o dinheiro para ele levar o dinheiro suficiente para duas pessoas à volta. Agradecia, então, se for assim, eu também agradecia. After many weeks of searching, Rincon to find my brother. He lives with my grandparents in a village very far away. My best moment is where I saw my grandparents and my brother again. So that's my best moment to meet again with my family. And then, you know, he said, Whoa, is this my grandson? You know, I don't believe in them. It's wonderful. It was very wonderful for me. I wanted to see my mother's grave. My brother is living the only life he's ever known. He's coming to live with a boy.
interesting about um, this documentary is that we gave a camera to uh, Alcides, who was 16, and taught him how to shoot. And we also used the photography in the film that 18 orphans had uh, taken. And we taught them how, how to take pictures. And the reason we did this is that my feeling was that documentarians and journal photojournalists go in as outsiders, take the story, and then leave with it and bring it to us. But we often don't get the insider's point of view. But now with new technology, the cameras are so inexpensive that we can actually help people by teaching them. So we don't just say, here's a camera, go shoot. But we actually have a curriculum. We teach them how to shoot, teach them how to make the film. And they can tell their own story, which gives a fuller view of the situation. And so by using new media in the sense of these, these cameras that weren't available several years ago, people now have the ability to tell their own stories. And some photojournalists and documentarians feel threatened, but I don't think they should because I think, you know, if I had made this film myself, it would have been a very different film from Alcides's point of than Alcides making it about his journey. And this is the short version because the, the long version, it's been in 25 festivals. I fear he thinks that you just make a film and he just like goes to festivals. And <laughs> they fly you to London. He just went to London. I didn't go. Went for, for, for Human Rights Watch. It's been to New York and, and Washington, D.C. And the, the whole version has his friends in it too. So there's one kid who'd never found a family and there's one kid who went to jail for stealing to, to uh, take care of his siblings. But it gives you um, a story and you can ask Certainly, a lot of policy issues come up, like why is there no foster care or orphanages and things like that, and, and then hopefully one will go out and explore those issues if, when one has moved. So that story, I think, resonates because it reaches you at a deeply human level that numbers alone just can't. Don't get me wrong. We need, to to, we need data to understand the scope of an issue, of course, and to analyze which programs and policies work and which ones don't. But stories may be just as important for helping society grapple with the ethical dilemmas and choices policies are meant to tackle. And we all know from the recent health care debate that stories have the power to sway public opinion in ways numbers can't. If we can agree that trenchant social issues make for compelling television, then we should strive to tell these stories, even if they are controversial, or if some members of the audience don't believe they're appropriate for the airwaves. These folks don't have to watch though we all might be better off if they did. But by now, I hope I've convinced you that it's important to present the messy topics of life on TV. <coughs> now the question is, does it matter? Will anyone pay attention? The answer is yes, for several reasons. First, we are by nature storytellers. Our brains are wired to tell stories, I, I think. Um, think about uh, all the stories you've told already today. You've all told stories to your friends, your colleagues, your spouses. And if you're robbed of the ability, I was telling the students this morning to tell stories as our people with Alzheimer's, you're left in a, fl a, a flux. You're, you, you can't make sense of your world. And so um, stories are the currency of our lives. They're the measure of our days. And we're nothing without our stories because stories encapsulate our fears, our failures, our dreams, and our desires. We understand and make sense of our own lives by telling stories about ourselves and others. People who can't tell stories, for example, as I said, those afflicted with advanced Alzheimer's or Korsakoff's are lost to us. So TV dramas are, for, for me, more than just an escape from our daily lives. They are touchstones for our emotions. Stories guide us. They are ways for us to make sense out of all the facts and figures and arguments we hear about things like the climbing teenage pregnancy rate, whether abortion should be continue to be legalized, or why one out of three women who enter an ER is the victim of domestic violence. Stories shake us up. They make us see other points of view through characters we can identify with. And if the show is really good, we continue to think about it, turning it over in our minds, savoring it. Maybe we even begin to think about things a little differently from the way we had thought about them before. I think stories on TV captivate us because we see our own lives and the characters' struggles. We sit and root for some, loathe or love others. Stories are stand-ins for our own fraught-filled lives. They offer relief, an hour to step away from our own dramas, and yet they can work on our psyches as we watch, offering us new perspectives or bolstering our beliefs. If I've begun to convince you of the power of TV drama, you will probably be surprised to find that it's even more powerful than you might have expected. 
In 2000, I worked with the Kaiser Family Foundation and Princeton Survey Research to find whether people actually learned anything from ER. I believe we were the first study to assess whether an episode which presented some facts artfully blended into the story were picked up by the audience. We sampled a random group of viewers. It was a pre-test and a post-test and assessed their knowledge of human papillomavirus as the cause of cervical cancer. The show aired and then another random sample of viewers was interviewed. Um, in the past, studies were just retrospective. They'd say, do you remember what you saw last night on ER? And you know, those are obviously biased studies. So we did the first uh, experimental study. We interviewed people about um, their knowledge of cervical cancer and human papillomavirus. The show aired. We did not say watch the show. They got the treatment though. And then we resurveyed a random sample of viewers. I won't show you the clips, but I'll show you the results because they were pretty alarming. So it would be um, the, the DVD that says PowerPoint. Um, so what we found is that, like it or not, people learned plenty from the show. 9%, um, I believe it's, well, I can tell you first that one out of seven viewers of ER said that they actually went to a healthcare provider because of something they saw on the show. So <laughs> that gave us pause, which is why I try to make the show as accurate as possible because, <laughs> you know, as opposed to other, as, we're on the right, as opposed to other medical series that might be on the air. And um, because people, like it or not, take what they see on television as the truth and real. And I often say to, um, We can't show, I can tell what the. I can realize. Tell us the story I'm, I'm about the numbers, <laughs> right? I'll tell you the story. So the numbers showed that 9% of the viewers who saw the show, usually, you know, everybody here does PowerPoint, but I can tell you, 9% uh, knew that HPV caused cervical cancer. This was before Gardasil. After the show aired, 30% knew. Now we had 40 million viewers. So that's 12 million. If it doesn't work, it's fine. Okay. So we had, so 30% knew after the show aired. So that's, we had 40 million viewers back then. So that's um, 12 million viewers. So it was really alarming. Then we resurveyed people several weeks later and the numbers uh, drifted down, but never down to the original base level of 9%. So that's when we say that um, repeats are handy for the booster that you, you, when you do communications research, you always try to have boosters so that you can keep giving the information in different ways. But the, but the main point was that people learn, even though you're telling them that they're not, you're not telling them to watch for that reason, they learn all kinds of things from television. They learn, they obviously learn ideological messages as well, the way you cast the show, the ethnic diversity of the cast, what women do, what men do. So anyone who says, you know, talks about trying to be balanced, um, and the network uh, says, you know, we're trying to be balanced is, I think, kidding themselves because we all come with our ideological perspective. That's okay. We don't have to show that. It's all right. Sorry. It's all right. So, um, people learn uh, about health topics on TV in spite of themselves. And knowledge is the first requisite step in changing behavior. In this case, uh, having pap smears and using condoms. If you don't know that uh, HPV causes cervical cancer, then there's no way you can even take steps to prevent it. We're not saying that we can change behavior, but we can also, and I, I'll talk about that, we can use new, uh, in a minute, use new media as a way now to augment messages that we're presenting on television. We were also chastened by the finding that one in seven viewers contacted, as I said, a healthcare provider after watching an episode of ER. That's a lot of responsibility to place on a show, and we took that responsibility seriously, not wanting to impart inaccurate information. Stories have the power to move us emotionally, stir us intellectually, and teach us too. One of the reasons I enjoy writing SVU is because I can take roiling social policy issues and transform them into what I hope will be compelling and engaging stories. So I'm going to show you now a clip where it says, um, witness on the front. That should work. Here's a clip. This is very brief. A clip from my show that aired two weeks ago that delves into rape in Congo. So, does it say 
Okay. So um, I think John Prendergast is talking tomorrow. He was the consultant on this episode. Um, I try to do international topics, even though there's a bias from the network's point of view that Americans aren't interested in international issues, which I don't think is true given the response we got through Twitter, Facebook, and our ratings on this episode. So this is just two brief clips. In the criminal justice system, sexually based offenses are considered especially heinous. In New York City, Thanks. the dedicated detectives who investigate these vicious felonies are members of an elite squad known as the Special Victims Unit. These are their stories. Do you have any idea what is happening in the Congo? Where I come from, hundreds of thousands of women have been raped. In the eastern provinces, it is used as a weapon of war. It is so common, it is to be expected. Is that what happened to you? They came into my house. Five of them. They raped me and my daughter in front of my husband. In the middle of it, he ran away. No one came to save us. My angel, Sabine was only five years old. She looked into my eyes and cried for her mama as they each took their turn with her. Where is she now? It took her six days to die. What about your husband? Did you ever find him? passed through, he came back, cast me out of our home. He said everyone would know what happened to me. He could not bear the shame. I ran into the forest. I made my way to a refugee camp in North Kivu. One day, the Interharamwe king accused us of treating rebels who attacked the mine they were guarding. They... They dragged me back into the camp. to escape the epidemic of sexual violence taking place in the Democratic Republic of Congo. The men who raped me were fighting for control of the mines that produced tin, tungsten, and tantalum, the conflict minerals you so desperately need to make your cell phones and computers. Objection. What does this have to do with this trial? He called her character into question and insinuated she was a member of a terrorist organization. He opened this door. Overruled. Ms. Eula, do you see rape everywhere? The women in my village were raped. The women in the militia camp were raped. I was raped repeatedly by so many men I lost count. They put their guns in my sex and one of them pulled the trigger. I was in the hospital for over a year. It left me incontinent. So yes, I have seen rape everywhere. That is how I know that girl was raped.
So being a product of the Ed School Sociology Department and the Medical School, I just can't stop myself from wondering how I can use my shows to stimulate discussion. <laughs> it's one thing to see it in your home. It's quite another to engage in a conversation about it. That's where new media come in. In partnership with participants who produced An Inconvenient Truth, Good Night and Good Luck, and Food Inc., among other, other films, I, I give them clips from shows we will be airing, and they design a forum for outreach on their site, takepart.com. When we presented our show on rape in Congo, Take Part set up a page on their site with links to organizations, blogs, and information. And I don't, that, that's on the PowerPoint, but I'll just tell you about it. NBC put Take Part on their webpage as well, and I tweeted about it, about the show, to my 7,000 followers. And I asked the students this morning how many of them had been on Twitter, and I would say only like a third. I was pretty surprised because Twitter's really, you know, um, a way to reach, well, I'll tell you how many people I reached. Um, so I have 7,000 followers. They're fans, and I give them little tidbits about the show. But I also embed URLs that take them to these websites and to, um, oh, here it is. OK, here it is. Take part. So um, I, um, with a, I embedded the URL into the Twitter so that they could go to take part. And then what's really interesting is I'm concerned, and I have been since I, was, since I started that first day in ed school, how do you connect social issues to policymakers? And so, and how do you get people mm. to take action? So what we do in Take Part is it says take part in the issues behind witness, and we give viewers concrete ways to get involved. So it's like learn about the Congo's conflict, sign up for updates, support legislation, organize your campus, watch a video, read a book. So that when you, I, I, I'm sure you couldn't help but be moved by the, the pieces that you just saw. And if we can capture audiences after they've been moved emotionally, then we can take them into new media, websites such as this. Can we go to the next one? Um, or to the cheat sheet on the Daily Beast, or at the next one, or Enough Project, which I, with John Printeris, is coming, I think, tomorrow to talk about that. But this gave a whole, a whole we had a clip, and we talk about it. Another, can you go again? Um, Human Rights Watch. We, I Twittered, watch SVU 314, uh, Rape in Congo, Powerful, Follow, at HRW, at Enough Project, at Take Part, at Nick Kristoff, keep going. So here's what happened. Here are the metrics. We did a piece for the Huffington Post, too. So 156 people, as of March 26th, uh, shared the article on Facebook. 2,200 shared it on Twitter, and thousands retweeted it to their followers. A typical article, according to Huffington Post, might have 4 to 10 share on Facebook and 40 on Twitter. And even Ariana Huffington, I have. She had um, a piece recently. She had it shared 22 times and 222 times. 22 on Facebook, 222 on Twitter. On Twitter, so I was Twittering Nick Kristoff and John Hudson of the Enough Project. The article was tweeted, this, just this Huffington Post article, to over a, a million followers. And I embedded a 30-second video taken from one of the pieces you just saw that also was that the viewers could see. So you can see that there are these new ways of augmenting. So you could do it with any <coughs> policy issue. And I started to experiment with, with, uh, with Twitter <coughs> and partnerships and Facebook. And then the next step would be with mobile phones, because I could put that 30-second piece onto a mobile phone for a Mobisode. And I could use it, and I could distribute it in many different ways. It's in ways much easier than using uh, laptop because in Congo, for instance, one out of three people has a um, mobile phone, and they use them. Actually, women are using them to warn each other now about uh, where rapes are occurring. So, um, uh, I think this is a really powerful way that no, not, not too many people are yet using in in Hollywood to promote uh, discussion about social policy. Do I have an agenda? Yes, I want. You know, people to know about rape in Congo. Congo, six million people have been murdered, and you talk to people, they don't know about it. So this is a way, at least, to get the discussion started. So the challenge, of course, is to bridge the gap between inspiring viewers and motivating them to take action. 
and that quest applies to policymakers too. Stories can light a fire under legislators, can it, can they, can it, Mary Jo, <laughs> and move them to appropriate money for programs. So I think, I think it can, because you know, the reason that, um, that kidneys are, kidney transplantation is free is because people did a dog and pony show before Congress with really moving stories about kidney transplantation, and that's why they appropriated the money back then for, the, for that, you know, for that to be covered. So the tough part is, is connecting them to the story, but there are ways to do this through hearings, staffers, blogs. Good stories can cut through the noise, I believe. So um, I hope you'll leave today a bit more inspired to tell your own stories through new media, particularly. I've taken issues that I care about deeply and made them into TV dramas, and now I'm using new media to viral them out. I have no idea how many of those, a million followers have their own followers. And they're not just the converted who read Nick Kristoff. Some of them are, but undoubtedly others aren't. We, we should do a study on it to find out how many followers really, how many people really were, became aware of the show. And I have no idea. Uh, but you need not be a TV writer to tell the stories. You're at the Kennedy School because you care about social issues, obviously, and you care about improving people's lives. And today there are many outlets available that didn't exist just two years ago for you to tell stories that you're passionate about with blogs and YouTube and Twitter and Facebook and websites and websites, in addition to the tried and true op-ed pages testifying before legislatures, teaching as you all do, and new ways to use the web and, and ways that haven't been thought of yet, particularly which is what I'm using now, which is apps, mobile phone apps. So um, I'm interested in uh, a soda tax and, and promoting a soda tax in, in California. You know, we have no money for health care in California, and we can make a billion dollars by, by taxing one teaspoon of, one cent per teaspoon of sugar. So right now I'm working on how can I use new media to engage people and get them away from the computer. So through phone apps, so now through my mobile phone, I can start to design ways using geo uh, locators to connect people and maybe like find places where they can meet and then I can aggregate material like the Daily Beast does, they aggregate news. I can aggregate material that people can use in their discussions so that I can mobilize people possibly in this issue that I care about that I think we need because of the, the lack of funding and also because we have a 41% obesity rate in, using data in Los Angeles County for, for children. So. I want to answer questions or have any thoughts. So um, this is just the sort of my story of how I try to, to, to uh, take policy issues that you know I think people should be thinking about and how we can uh, how I can make them public. Good, Neil. Thank you very much. Uh, let's let's we have, we have some time for questions and we do privilege students at least in the first couple of questions. So uh, if there are students here who have a question. Um, if, please. Um, your, your documentary, I would say, is equally as powerful as um, as the episode that you saw, that you showed us. How do you um, make sure that the public gets to see that? The, the documentary. The documentary, because you know it's easy to show a clip of a TV show and to spread it virally, but how do you do that with with the documentary? And I mean, you can certainly show a clip, but right? I have a four-minute version that that. We do put out, but I don't. I don't have a thirty-second version. Um, well, it'll be on TV eventually. It'll either be on HBO or Showtime, and, and so you try. And you know, it's been seen by several, at least several hundred thousand people. There's a really interesting film festival. It's been in twenty-five film festivals, but there's one really interesting one called the Manhattan Short Film Festival, where it is presented in every state <coughs> in the United States, at museums, at movie theaters, and in I think forty countries. So in one week in September, the film was shown all over the world. And so that's, this, this, this fellow who invented this way of distributing films was very savvy in that. He, he was asking that question that you're asking, how do I get people to see it? And he made, he just went around the United States and contacted museums and contacted community centers and mm -hmm. said, will you show these films one night? And so that's a start, but I think now with with Twitter and mobile phones and new ways to, to reach people, you can sh certainly show pieces. And I don't know, you know, that's just, you know, that's always 
the, 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 the trick. How do you get people to, to, to move away from their daily lives to, to see something like that? But they do, and then they get, you know, I've had a lot of people say to me, and then they go to take part, and that take part's being funded by American Express, and they're doing this whole project where if you, um, when you buy something, say it's $12.85, you can elect to have the 15 cents put into an account that's going to go for these kinds of projects, these nonprofits and NGOs, and people at, who have an American Express card are going to learn about it. <coughs> so there's all kinds of new partnerships that are going on to try to get people more informed. This is fascinating. Um, I think one question. <laughs> Given the power of the sort of ideology here, um, do, you, do you know of examples of efforts to buy that ideology, um, to basically fund shows in an explicit or implicit exchange for yes. sharing? Okay. Well, we got in a lot of trouble when we didn't know that ONDCP, which you know, the drugs are, mm -hmm. during the Clinton administration, yes, um, was had made a deal with with the networks that if TV shows would put in messaging about anti-drug messaging that the, the <coughs> networks wouldn't have to pay for those PSAs and we didn't know I think that's when you were in Washington maybe but not my fault <laughs> but it wasn't your fault <laughs> you were in the, you were trying to you were trying to, to, to do Before other things it. yeah so uh, uh, so we were appalled and we had, to, we had to testify that we didn't know that we were doing that. So that's the only time that's ever happened. I don't get advocacy groups very much anymore um, coming to me. And we don't talk to advocacy groups. We do have a group that's at USC. Well, you're clearly working with enough, which is an well, group, Which is great. I just... Yeah. I go to them. Okay. I, didn't, I okay. didn't go to... Yes, and, and, and I don't pretend that I'm not... I don't talk about balance. It was, it was interesting yeah. in your class because they're all about, you know, because they're, they're studying journalism and they believe in balance. You know, they believe there's such a thing as balance. <laughs> do you believe there's such a thing as balance? <laughs> um, and I love your work, but do you believe there's such a thing as balance? Um, so. Um, but they didn't come lobby you. No, yeah. I went to John because I knew he was an expert in this. Now, did this <clears> have something? So a, a student said to me, oh, you know, Rape in Congo, that's an obvious issue that everybody thinks is bad and everybody should know about. And I said, yes, but I didn't show them this clip. I also talked about conflict minerals. And there are people who have differing opinions about it, but fine, and go look it up. And if you, if you don't agree, then talk about it. Um, but I do use, so, I, so we don't talk to advocacy groups. We do have an organization out of the Lear Center at USC that's funded by the CDC and Gates that just goes to shows and tells and provides experts from the CDC on health issues so that things aren't, aren't mistaken. So Atul Gawande, I brought a tool to, uh, uh, to Hollywood last year. I went to medical school with them. And I said, talk to ER about the checklist. And they put it in their ER, and it had a profound effect. Um, so I was advocating, yes. But it was a pro-social public health message that these doctors should be doing the checklist because we know it saves lives and we've done studies. So I don't separate myself from the data at all. I know, we know from in Atul's new book, The Checklist Manifesto, we know that this works. So some people do get upset with me for doing that. But it's about stories and conflict. And I try to be accurate in the facts that I, that I present. Um, but I do deal with the tough issues, like if, when I did a show about teen access to abortion, or should women who are, should women who decide to maintain a pregnancy be forced to stop drinking? Because fetal alcohol syndrome is the, large, is, is the number one cause of mental retardation in the United States. So I articulate the different points of view through my characters. So when I did the show about prematurity and what position should we take as a society, Chris Maloney said, as I said earlier, you don't take a position, you do everything you can. And Mariska's saying, is that always the right thing? Mm -hmm. So through, and, and I do it through their backgrounds, because he's, um, he was an altar boy, and he has five children, and he's a, you know, very, um, he, he still goes to church, and Mariska's character is the product of a rape, <coughs> and she sees, you know, sometimes evil in everybody, and, and, and violence, and so they, they, they have different points of view, as we all do as people, because we have different backgrounds. And that's a way I can articulate 
the different positions about issues like euthanasia and whether it should be legal or not through the characters as opposed to I try not to just proselytize and say this is the right answer but to show the messiness of, of the situation. Now, Neil, there's this kind of a related question, and that's the degree of self-censorship that's going on. And uh, you'd mentioned in the class this morning about ABC, Fox, um, abortion. <coughs> right. Um, is there a lot of sort of self-censorship that's kind of setting the agenda for I maybe not your program, but no. for a lot of the programming? Oh, I think so, definitely. If you watch, and what happens is then it, it, then it comes out in kind of perverse ways. like. For instance, on Glee, they would never be able to have the teenage girl who got pregnant get an abortion, but they are lascivious in so many other ways. It's quite, has anyone seen Glee? No. So it's really interesting because all kids are, it's a huge, huge hit amongst teenagers. And I find it a really repellent show because it pretends to be sort of um, all-encompassing and there's a, a but it's very stereotypic. There's this gay kid who wants to be in the theater and an overweight African-American girl who's a good singer and, the, and a bitchy white girl who wants to be a singer. And then they, but it's, but it's very, but every, every ethnicity and, 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 and gender and, and, and sexual uh, persuasion is presented. And yet, when the cheerleaders are cheerleading, the camera does crotch shots and does the, the, the music teacher who's, who's with the athlete is, the male music teacher is drooling over the, the football player and I find it really repellent because they would never do a show about the issue of abortion even though one of the characters is pregnant but it's it's sort of very surreptitiously titillating so we try I mean we never shoot we've shot a gun three times on my show um, and because I happen to not like guns so I'm lucky that I get to run a show and I get to be against guns um, <laughs> But a lot of people disagree with me about that. Um, but I still, so I try to, I try to take that into consideration. But we don't self-censor. Self-censor. Fortunately, NBC has never told us we can't do a show. We have a show coming on that takes on the hamburger industry, which is a disaster in this country. And and you probably read the the, the, the New York Times piece that's just <laughs> horrifying. So so they, as long as we have, it's really interesting. And I said this this morning. As long as we have peer-reviewed research, or research you know that really comes from a quote reliable source, we can't just pull data. When we did our vaccine show, we one of the writers came to me with this crazy data. I looked at, it and I said, "You must have just pulled this off the internet." He goes, "Yeah." And I said, "Get it from the CDC." Like <laughs> <laughs> vaccines are bad. They are they cause autism. I said, "Okay, where did you get this?" Give me a peer-reviewed article. So we do. So there is some. There is some 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 manner of, of uh, overseeing what we're putting on the show, and NBC does demand that we have peer-reviewed articles from journals that you know when we're talking about a drug that may not be on the market that can treat heroin addiction, heroin addiction, and whatever. We have backup to support it, so we're not just putting out putting junk out there. But I do think there's self-censorship, and the networks won't allow those 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 uh, shows to do. Pretty much the, the main hot button topic is, is abortion stuff. We have time for one more. Yeah, Peter. Do you succeed because of or despite of the political messages in your work in the sense of, okay, there was some really great reaction to your rape in Congo episode, but would more people have watched that episode if it hadn't been about raping in, in Congo? And you know, to whatever extent you've shown that it's possible to have political messages embedded are people taking that on in other shows uh, that you can see? Well, there are a number of answers to that. One is I don't really care if, if well, I don't know whether or not what the answer is because I can't, I don't know how to test that to see. And so it doesn't really, it's not something I worry about. Um, policy issues are the best source of stories. That's why, you know, I don't watch TV because you know, if I watch a certain network that has a certain number of shows that have middle-aged men surrounded by young people and they solve crimes, doesn't really interest me um, because that's just me. Um, I'm, I find stories really compelling that deal with the issues that people deal with in their homes. 
and it could be about abortion or it could be about whether to vaccinate their kid or it could be about um, hamburgers that make them sick or it could be about whether solitary confinement is justified or whether um, alcoholism is a brain disease and how that affects, you know. So sometimes they're on a very personal level and sometimes they're on a more political, social level. Like if alcoholism is a brain disease, as NIDA says, does that have any implications for our legal system? Because schizophrenia is a brain disease and there are ways of, when people are schizophrenic and don't have rational control over their actions, they may not go to prison, they may go to a psychiatric hospital. What about someone who can't, say, stop drinking or they're addicted to alcohol and they commit a crime under the influence of alcohol? What does that mean? If the government is saying, NIDA is saying, Alan Leshner started this, said alcoholism is a brain disease. What does that mean? So I find these stories, for me personally, compelling, and I am very lucky that I get to do stories that I find interesting, like you all do. You know, you do research on whatever topic one hopes interests you. Otherwise, you'd be really bored. So I don't know the answer. Some people get really upset, like when I did homeschooling. Homeschool, and I was talking about this this morning. You know, if you send your kid to a private or public school, someone's going to see your kid. But you, in the United States, can keep your kid away from any, everybody in the world, if you so choose, by homeschooling them. And I just started to explore that. And I got more angry mail about that than anything ever. <laughs> you know, how could you, how dare you take on homeschooling? Because people also take, as I said, the templates of their lives. And when it's about them in particular, it's fine when it's a story that moves you and you want to take some action. But when it hits you at home, like if you homeschool, then it's like, that's not me, you know. And I can deal with that. And, you know, a lot of viewers don't take it personally. Um, but they might be moved. But it's, those are all interesting questions. Um, shows don't tend, since, since West Wing and ER are not on anymore, there really aren't shows that deal with policy issues. A lot of shows deal with issues, but not in the, sort of the way that we, we do, where we try to go kind of on a deeper level and we try to augment them through new media. Um, and I think that's too bad. Uh, but I don't think that that, you know, I don't, I don't know if that's going to change or not. Um, but I just take the position that stories can be really involving and interesting if they're about something and they don't just have to be about just relationships. And even, and as I said at the very beginning, everything has an ideology behind it. And so the shows that are about just solving crimes do have this ideology about, you know, they, they look at people in a certain way, uh, they cast in a certain way, um, and, and, and we're all, all those decisions we're making. But I think we have to keep telling ourselves that it's important if we are doing these issues that are social issues that have policy implications, that we present a variety of perspectives in the show. We do have to actually. Uh, one, do it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Go ahead. California voters will soon have enough money to vote up or down on legalization of marijuana. Right. Is that the kind of issue that you would avoid through self censorship? Is it too controversial? No. <laughs> no. In fact, you know, in fact, I'm gonna we're gonna do it next year because what I'm interested in is the is I'm a trustee at Colorado College, and so the president picks the last year's student governor of Ohio and the ambassador to India said to me, you know, Neil, we've got these kids who are smoking marijuana legally because they have um, prescriptions. And I said, could a high school student have a prescription? And so I have to look into that. But I thought, okay, there's a show. Or today, when I was listening to the news, and I told the students this morning, I heard the horrible story about bullying. So here's how I start to think about a show. So I, I, I wrote, to, I have a full-time researcher, and I wrote, I said, Brian, pull all the, all the articles on the bullying case in Massachusetts. Pull all the work that's being done by psychologists on bullying right now. And so I started to think, okay, this is really, this is pure SVU, because it gets to issues of where do you draw the line? What's bullying? Um, should we as a society be telling kids you know, what is and isn't accepted in their behavior in terms of, of bullying and making laws? Should we pass, I think Massachusetts is passing the law, should we pass laws? How do you enforce them? 
and you know now you know the stories about the crazy things where girls girls and boys who are five and six years old who bring aspirin to school and all that kind of stuff you know and things get over they're over over overly over zealously uh, uh, looked at but but um, but it, but this bullying story is certainly one that gets to the heart of it. why do people bully so I can really like go at all these different angles um, by that, by that, by that story that came out out of the state. Just an additional observation on that, and then the, the the piece where sort of new media fits into that is that young people bully each other on MySpace and on. They Facebook did after she, after she yeah. was had had died, they were still bullying her on on Facebook. So we want to get into that. And, and so then, to me, one of the interesting elements of the criminal justice system is that, like you know, so gangs, right, have in many places become not just like so bloods and crips, but um, smaller units of people attached to a certain housing project, right? And they'll sort of posture themselves on these inner forms of internet communication as a way of sort of, you know, showing off who they are. But by the same token, the police can be watching what's happening on those, you know, MySpace or Facebook or whatever it is. I think that's a really interesting way. I don't know, the dynamics of how crime happens in, among young people, I think, has really been affected by and how they'll be using new media. Now, you know, kids don't use Twitter from the studies I've seen as much as adults do right now. They're texting just their friends. Um, and, and so that's interesting, but we'll see, see what happens and how Twitter will be used like in developing world as well because it's starting to be used just for people to inform each other when the doctor's coming, when the fish, when the catch is good, you know, in India so that they can bring them to market or not bring them to market and the, the market will know so there's so much going on with Twitter but it's 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 interesting for for criminal justice how how they'll be monitoring kids and how kids will figure out how to not be monitored <laughs> as well. Neil Barrett, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.